if I were to ask you the question, where do most stories start? Most of us would say, well, at the beginning. That's where stories start. But we know that's often not true, right? If you've read books or seen or watch television shows, you've seen stories start in random places. Sometimes they'll start at the end, and not only will they start stories at the end, but then they'll find themselves going backward, trying to figure out what to do with that. And so you find yourself trying to put the pieces together, or often they'll start a story right in the middle. And when the story starts in the middle, we don't really know what to do with that, because we just kind of figure out the beginning as we go. Now, authors and storytellers do that for a couple of reasons. It's not Maybe because the whole thing isn't true, it's because they want to emphasize particular points of the story. And they'll begin with particular spots. So I was thinking about this, like if I were to tell you some stories from my own life, they're true stories, I'm not making them up, but I would say like I was late to my own wedding. Now you're going to hear that and go, really? That's not a good start. Well, I wasn't actually late to the wedding itself, although I was late for the time I was supposed to be there. What happens when you're speeding and get over by the Michigan State Police, um, it slowed down. Uh, I didn't get a ticket that day, by the way. Um, or I could tell you, you know, the day that Katie was trying to call me pregnant with Isaac, I, <laughs> I found myself uh, playing golf and didn't take her phone call because I don't know that I told her I was going to play golf, so I didn't take the phone call <laughs> until later, found out, and then I felt bad I didn't take the call, right? Like, what are the things that we want to know that we... I tell you the story, it doesn't make it less true. And so I'd say it this way. We see in the Gospels that the, the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these books are true, but they have unique perspectives. They're telling a true story, a story they believe to be true, but they start in different places. They have a kind of a singular goal. They want you to know about the life, the person, and the presence of Jesus but they emphasize little different parts, and they actually begin their stories in different spots. Today we'll be looking at the book of Mark, and Mark begins his book in a unique spot. He doesn't begin with the birth. He assumes you know Jesus was born, like you can't be a person and not have been born. So he just kind of skips over that whole portion of it, and he begins with this idea. He wants to tell people about good news. In fact, he says it this way the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, I want to say this today because I think it's important for us. Uh, when good news is good, we don't really care at what point in the story the story is shared. We just want to know the good news. And Mark is convinced that he has good news. What he's convinced about is that his good news exists in such a way that not only is it a story in which we are invited into what God is doing in the world, but we are then invited into the story to share with others the good news about Jesus. That's kind of the goal here, is to share the good news. And so what we find is when we begin to share the good news, Mark records this and he writes these words. He doesn't start at the very beginning, like the birth of Jesus, or even some of the prophetic texts, but he starts in this unique way. And so I'll read it to you from Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness 
preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark kind of lays out the beginning for him. The whole thing begins with good news. Let me tell you about the good news of Jesus. Let me tell you who Jesus actually is. And so I I was thinking how I would kind of describe what Mark's trying to do here. Um, In college, I took a speech class. Um, I hated it. I hated the speech class. I was supposed to give a persuasive speech. I, to this day, can't tell you what I talked about. But I can tell you one of the ways they tell you to speak if you're going to give a speech. They would say, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you. Right? If you ever took a speech class, that's one of the phrases or ways in which they teach it. Um, I don't know that it's all that effective for, for most of us. We get bored with that. But that's one of the ways in which we teach people to speak. And it's as if Mark is doing that. Here, let me tell you what I'm going to tell you. Now I'm going to tell you. And at the end of this, I will tell you what I told you. And so what he's saying is this, Jesus is the fulfillment of all these other stories that have come before. Not only has he been talked about, but we'll see he's been fulfilled in this. Jesus connected to all the prophets and all these things, and he brings them back to this idea that maybe, just maybe, Jesus has done something so radically new, we're not careful, we've missed it. And so he references, he says, it's from the prophet Isaiah, but actually the first line he gives is actually from the prophet Malachi, and it's these words, I will send my messenger. So what Mark's saying is this, there's a guy coming who's going to share about the other guy coming. And why does that matter? Because Malachi is referencing this idea that the people had found themselves in Israel and they had really become, become, become wayward from the way God had invited them to be the unique people of God. The temple had become corrupt. They had found themselves really looking more like the culture in which they lived. And so what, what John's in the desert saying is, listen, one's coming, and I'm that first messenger. It says, hearken to the idea that God wants to purify and do something new among his people. And then we do see that Mark references these words from Isaiah chapter 40. And these words, these words are powerful. These words we want to take just a couple minutes to look at. And so here's what he says, Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to, to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, there's a picture there that you and I probably don't get well, because we didn't grow up in the ancient world. 
when a king would come to town, the people would go out and they would prepare the king's road. I know it sounds like, okay, well, it makes some sense, right? So if you knew a king or a Caesar or a Pharaoh or someone was coming to your community, your community would then go out and fix the road for them to enter in on. And so these words here, every hill made low, every valley raised up. In other words, think of it this way. In Michigan, it'd be every pothole filled. I don't even know that even God could do that. I mean, it's bad here. But this idea that we're going to make these roads straight, these paths are going to be clear for the king to come. So John's in the desert telling people, hey, we're making way for the king to come. He's coming. The true king, the one that will set the world right. And not only are we preparing a way for him, but once we know, we're to invite others on the way that has been prepared. And so this is a reminder for you and I to be people who prepare the way for Jesus. Jumping to verse 11, we see these words. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Mark references Isaiah chapter 40 because it also paints as a picture of the character and nature of Jesus. Mark wants us to know that this is who Jesus is. He's the shepherd that comes out to take care of us. He's the shepherd who doesn't leave anyone behind. He's the shepherd who is gentle. He's the one who reminds us of the nature and character of God's own heart. And we go on and read these words beginning with verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He who gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even the youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the hope. This is the hope that we come to believe in when we come to know Jesus. That's what Isaiah longs for the people of God to know, that there will be a day when God's love really is everlasting in a way that you can know. There will be a day. But until that day, have faith, trust, learn to live as a people in fact, what I love about this is, is the guy giving this message is John, who's out in the wilderness. And John, I don't know how to describe him well, other than um, he's kind of a dude you couldn't help but respect. At one level, I mean, like, he's kind of crazy. He wears camel's hair and a leather belt, eats wild locusts and honey. I mean, kind of odd. But at one level, you've got to kind of respect a person that they are who they are. They're in their eccentric kind of self that they don't change. There's something faithful to that. There's something that you can't help but respect. And so people from Jerusalem who've been waiting 300 years to hear from God. Like I struggle to wait like at a restaurant. I mean, not right now, but I struggle to wait at a restaurant like 15 minutes. When they're like, hey, it's going to be 15 minutes. Do you want to go somewhere else? Like we get 15 minutes. That seems like a long time. I can't put it into context waiting for 300 years. 
wondering, begging, longing for God to do something, for God to speak, for God to show up, to not feel like I've been stranded or left on the side of the road, to feel like I've been trying to be faithful to you, God. Where are you? And so John shows up and he begins to say, hey, this, hey, it's time to change. It's time for you to be different than you were. It's time for you to be radically changed because it is not working here. Jerusalem and the, and the surrounding community, the Jews are coming out to the deserts, to the Jordan River, to be baptized. Why? They're coming out because they know this. They've bought into the civil religion of their country, the civil religion of Rome. It's not working. It's like prime example this year. If you put your hope in politics, your hope's in the wrong spot. They've been expecting God to work in such a unique way like every other kingdom, and God doesn't work that way. He works uniquely. And so what I find is John's basically saying to them, listen, you've been sleepwalking through life. You've been in a daze. People have been coming to John going, hey, the trappings of this idea of this prosperity gospel that God's going to bless the people who love him and, and they'll just have more than everybody else, that's just not working for us. It's not working because, one, we don't have anything because the Romans have taken it all. It's not working for us because I feel like this is my life. I eat, I sleep, I work, and I repeat. Eat, and I sleep, and I work, and I repeat. And maybe I watch television for a few minutes in there. And my soul longs for something more. Is this just isn't enough. This can't be all it is. And so they find themselves going out to John in the wilderness saying, listen, my soul, my soul longs for something real, for something that feels like it is eternal, for something that feels like it is connected to the divine, for something that isn't like everything else I see around me. There must be more to life than this. And so John says this, yes, there is. There's a God who wants you to find purpose and hope and meaning and love, the kind of love that redefines the very character and essence of your life. And so John preaches this message, repent and be baptized. To repent means to literally like a turn from it. It's literally a changing of your mind. Confession is like just confess our sins, but to repent is to literally turn from, to not do the same thing anymore, to think differently. It is to live a radically new way of life. See, when we encounter Jesus, we cannot help but not be the same anymore. I love the story of um, two guys who traveled and preached, Billy Sunday and Billy Graham, um, the story about Billy Sunday is this, that he was in England, and, and uh, there were some businessmen in town, and, and when he showed up to speak, they're like, you know, we, we just hear this guy just comes to town, he takes a bunch of money, and we don't really want that here, and so we just think he's a sham, because we all know there have been people who've done that through the centuries. That same businessman, a week later, went back to the city leaders and said, hey, listen, Billy Sunday took $11,000 out of here, like this whole entourage that took $11,000, it was money well spent. I don't believe in that stuff he talked about, but I'll tell you this, the people in our community, their attitudes have actually changed. In fact, we have people showing up to my store who were paying back money from years ago when they stole stuff. I didn't even know they stole it. Same was said of Billy Graham, and I, I want to say it was in the 60s, and Billy 
was speaking in Louisiana, and um, this particular part of Louisiana had a very high rate of alcoholism. Billy spoke, and people, like, they, they laughed that liquor sales dropped by, like, 200%. There's something about when we encounter Jesus, it literally changes us. And so what we begin to see is that, that God wants to do a new thing, and John's longing for people to know this. And so what he wants them to know is this, that when we repent, we begin to recognize that repentance becomes a way of life. We continue to change. We continue to turn. We continue to think differently than we did before. It's one of the greatest things when we begin to watch someone or meet someone who comes to know Jesus. What happens over time is they begin to say, I used to be this, but now I'm this. It's why one of the coolest things that happened in, in Billy Graham, Louisiana, is that marriages that had been on the rocks that were going to fail, all of a sudden these people withdrew divorce certificates. God restores and redeems, and repentance becomes this radical way of life for us. And the call for them that John's calling to is to walk away from what they know, to walk to something they don't really know and begin to see God do a new work in them. The problem for them is they'd always bought into, much like us, that God's going to work in a way we understand God, and we put him in a particular box. And so John says, no, 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 you've misunderstood. You've thought to be one of God's unique people, you have to be Jewish. And if you weren't Jewish, you had to do a couple things. You had to be circumcised, you had to offer sacrifice, and you had to be baptized. That's how you could become Jewish. And John's going, I don't really care where you're from. I don't care what your birthright is, right? It's not like just because you're American doesn't mean you're Christian. Like, if you're, if you're English, like you live in England, Christianity, they actually have the Church of England. They have an official religion of the country. It doesn't mean you're a Christian. Your birthright doesn't matter in terms of the kingdom of God. Both a blessing and a curse for some, right? For some, it's like, well, I just thought because I grew up in it, I was in. If you want to be. You're invited. But baptism for them was kind of a radical thing for them because they didn't need to do it because I'm already Jewish. I'm already one of God's people. And he's going, yeah, but, but is your heart actually right or you just happen to live here? Proximity doesn't equal change. Change equals change. And so if you want to be who you've been, keep doing what you've been doing. And so what we find is this. This baptism is a connection for them to the most pivotal event of the entire Old Testament, the exodus out of Egypt. What happens? They've been enslaved in Egypt. They leave. They go through the Red Sea. It's their baptism to a new people. We enter into the Jordan River. We enter into baptism itself, and it becomes for us the symbolic act of saying, God, I have been this person, but I don't want to be this person anymore. I'm choosing a life of repentance and radical transformation. And I will become who you're calling me to be. I will find my hope and my purpose in you. I'll become the holy people you are calling us to be. Let's say it this way. God wants to use each of us. But it requires for us this willingness to be changed, this willingness to be transformed, this willingness to no longer be who we used to be, this becomes for us so powerful. 
And so what we begin to find is this, that when we repent, God begins to move in a new way. When we repent, God moves in a new way and it becomes for us this powerful thing. And so what we begin to find over and over and over again is love makes wrongs right. This is what John's trying to declare in the desert. And he doesn't even understand it all the way because he doesn't know the depth of what Jesus is going to do. But he knows this, I baptize with water, but he's going to do something beyond what I understand. So I was trying to think about what's an illustration when you think about like repentance or the idea of living differently. So I was thinking about not long ago, I don't, can't tell you exactly when, at least a year or so, um, my son Isaac got in trouble. Something happened and I knew he did it. And I went to him and I said, hey, um, unacceptable. I don't remember what it was. It was so big, right? Only to find out he didn't do it. I was wrong. Made my little kid cry. Always tough. So I'm back. And so we sit down. And I sat down like he was sitting up higher than me. And I got down on my knees so I could look him in the eye. And I said, hey, um, I'm sorry. I screwed up. I should have believed you. You told me you didn't do it. I should have trusted you. I will choose to trust you from now on. Don't make me, don't make me regret that, but I will choose to trust you when you tell me it's the truth. This is what repentance is. I was wrong. I'll choose to trust you. And he looked at me and he said, that's okay, Dad. And that's kind of what God does for us. That's okay. Let's move on. Don't let that past incident define your present or your future. See, this is what God does. He wants us to know that we're valued, that we matter, that God wants to use each of us. This becomes for us such a point that God wants to use each of us. By the act of our repentance, by how we live, God invites us into this unique way of life that he has for us. So I was trying to think, what what do we do with these people who come onto the wilderness? They're longing for God to do some new thing. They're wanting God to act in a way that they've never seen God act. They're wanting God to do this, this thing that has never happened before. But what they keep finding over and over and over again is this, that God's not going to do that. Too often we place God in a box ourselves. We box him in. And we wonder why sometimes that, why do people not want to believe in Jesus when we tell them about him? Because too often we share a message, a story that's just a part of the whole story. We're kind of like the Jews in the wilderness. We, we know there's some kind of civil religion and we're just not buying into it well and we're just kind of leaning into that. But what we miss then is God is doing a unique thing. God is doing something radical in our midst. But if we're not careful, we try to put God in a box because we think he only works the way we understand him to work. But God cannot be contained. bigger than that. So here's what I want us to know, what, what Mark is trying to get us to understand. The message that John was trying to share that ultimately leads us to the good news of Jesus is this, that love makes wrongs right. It makes us right. And it makes the world right. 
So what might happen? What might happen if you and I, not only do we recognize that love makes wrongs right, that that same love makes us right, and what if we lived in such a way that the world was made right by the love that we know exists for us? It comes back to what what Mark is referencing, we're going to go out and we're going to take valleys and raise them up. Or we're going to take hills and we're going to knock them down. Or we're going to make it clear the direction that leads to Jesus. And we'll find that in the midst of the story of God at work in the world, our story intersects with that. And then we invite others into that same unique story that says, hey, listen, it doesn't matter the direction you have gone. It doesn't matter what you have done, what your birthright is. Here's the good news for you. I have hope. That God is who he says he is. That Jesus has done what he said he would do. And you and I can know that through our repentance and our baptism, we not only can be washed clean by water if we want, but we can know God's spirit in such a way that sets our hearts right. And just like John reminds us, we are not worthy of God's love, but he loves us anyway. And back to these words from Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And so in these days, if you find yourself weary and exhausted and worn out, we should turn to the Lord for the hope of our strength. Even the youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. And if you find yourself stumbling and falling, or you have stumbled and you have fallen, know that he picks you up. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. (laughs) They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be Prophet Isaiah wants us to know there is something about the presence of God that can literally change our lives. Our soul longs for something to make us right. We're reminded again and again that when we feel overwhelmed, when God, when will the pandemic end? When can I go to church and not wear a mask? When can I go to the grocery store and not wonder if that person has washed their hands? When can I? Okay, maybe never for that one. Let's be honest. But when, God, when will you show up? Is it going to take 300 years? Or maybe, or maybe what we find in this is that Jesus is already present here and now. What John reminds us is his spirit has come. And we can be baptized with that spirit in such a way that it makes everything right. So these words for us again, love makes wrongs right. It makes us right. And it makes the world right. And so may you and I become more and more the people of God, the people of love. We've talked today a lot about baptism in the church. We, We recognize two sacraments or outward signs of inward grace. These events, these occasions, these opportunities, things that happen in which we see God at work and we say, this is what God's love looks like. This is God's grace for us. This is God's love. 
When we accept it, it changes us. And so um, you should have grabbed one of these. If you're home, grab your cracker and your juice now. But if you're with us, um, you should grab these at the door. You can go grab one right now if you need to. But, but Jesus, he's gathered his disciples. He already knows that one has betrayed him, Judas. He already knows that one other is going to betray him in the future, Peter. And in spite of knowing that, he still says this, would you come to my table and would you eat with me? So on that same night in which he's betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And we think about in these days, so many who feel like their bodies are broken. And Jesus is saying that I'll offer restoration to your very physical being as well. So here's this grace for you, so take and eat. In the same way he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, there's nothing you can do There's no place that you can go. There's nothing that can happen that will separate my love from you. There is no place in all of creation, in all of eternity, that my love will not go through. Take and drink. We pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning. We come to you and we begin to recognize that you are at work in the things we see and the things we don't see. That you love us as we are where we are. But in your love, you don't leave us here. You invite us to a unique way of life. You invite us to a hope that is worth living, that when our soul longs for something more than just eat, sleep, work, and repeat, your grace is sufficient for what we have done, what we will do. But it's not something that leaves us as we are. You offer us this, this opportunity to be radically transformed, to become the unique people of God who are so defined by your love, by your son's sacrifice, that it reorients our understanding of the world in which we live. And so, Father, we ask, don't, don't leave us or forsake us. Help us to find that we don't put you in a box, but we're able to live as a people who are so radically defined by love that our lives look different. And so, Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name.